This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. If you have your Bibles, and uh, I'm sure you brought them, or at least uh, your devices that have Uversion or another app, uh, open them please to First Peter chapter 4, we'll be in chapter 4 as well as chapter 5. Now those of you that were here last week, or if you listened through the, uh, the live stream, our lesson was entitled, How to Get Out of Jail. And some of you probably earlier in life really needed that lesson. Uh, Today, as a follow-up to that lesson, we're going to talk about what to do when you get out of jail. So, just a reminder, we're entering our second week of what we're calling P3. And we take that from Philippians chapter 4, where Paul tells us that prayer plus praise equals peace. Now, not all of our lessons during this 40-day period will be focused on prayer, praise, and peace. But we will be sprinkling in uh, different lessons, applicable lessons now and then. But I'm hoping that this will become a lifestyle change in all of us to where we will make a conscious effort to spend extra time in prayer, extra effort in praising, and then, of course, practice the peace of God. So just as a review to kind of get us connected again, last week in, in Acts chapter 12, we learned that James, the brother of John, had been executed by the sword, when, which when the Bible says killed by the sword, probably it meant that he had been beheaded. Now, Herod Agrippa, who had ordered this execution, had an anger problem. In fact, violence ran in the entire family. His grandpa was Herod the Great, who had ordered the killing of all the male babies around Bethlehem during the time of Christ's birth. Herod Agrippa, uh, what made him mad in this situation was that many people were turning to Christ. And and when they did so, uh, they had no problem defying Rome. And especially whenever the, the Roman machine would ask them to do something that violated their faith, they had no problem going against them. And so as a reaction... Uh, Herod Agrippa began arresting some of the high-profile leaders in the young Christian church. As I said, the first arrest was James. Then when Herod had him executed, um, it it pleased the crowd. And just to show you how warped and how sick that uh, society was, that when uh, he, uh, he, he was arrested, then, and, and killed, that caused that society to rejoice. And, and, and it pleased them, the Bible said. And so then they, um, uh, they, wanted more Christ, they wanted more Christian blood. And so Herod then arrested Peter, who perhaps was the biggest name at that time. Well, the night before Peter was to be brought to trial, still a review, more than likely executed, in, in timing that would have been way too close for comfort for me, the very night before there would be the trial and probably the execution, Peter was miraculously delivered from jail by an angel, And of course, last week we said the jail he was in would have probably been the equivalent of a supermax prison. He was secured by two chains, guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Well, naturally, Peter's disappearance from prison was a national embarrassment to Herod. So what did he do? He had the guards executed. And then he escaped away from Washington. Actually, it wasn't Washington, but it was kind of the equivalent in that day. He escaped away from Jerusalem to his beach house by the Mediterranean Sea. And last week we learned that he was eaten by worms. That's, uh, you ought to read the Bible because it's very exhilarating, very exciting, just the way the details are there. But what, what actually happened, um, Herod came out to make a public address, and 
and the people saw his robe. And, and the historian Josephus said that the robe he wore that day was, was made of silver. And so when the morning sun hit that silver, it reflected and partially out of amazement, partially out of fear. Uh, they said, we've in the past honored you as a man, but now we honor you with one as with a nature greater than any mortal being. Well, Herod enjoyed that praise way too much, did not deflect the praise to God. And the Bible says, listen, he was eaten by worms and then he died in that order. Now, we would say, well, he died and was eaten by worms like we will be. Uh, But the Bible says he was eaten by worms and then died. And according to Josephus, that was a very, very painful death. Well, um, after Peter was assisted by an angel and escaped from jail, he immediately went to the home of a woman named Mary. Now, just kind of as an aside, when you read the New Testament, it almost appears that every other woman in the New Testament was named Mary. Have you ever thought about that? In fact, scholars say that there were at least six and perhaps up to nine different Marys in the first five books of the New Testament. You had Mary, the mother of Jesus. You had Mary Magdalene, and one of her claims to fame was that she um, was delivered by seven demons. Uh, You had Mary of Bethany. Her brother was the famous Lazarus. You had Mary, the mother of John Mark, who in our lesson last week was hosting the prayer meeting for, for Peter when he escaped from jail. And this may be a little bit off point, but I, I think it's significant enough to mention, you might ask the question, why, what's up with Marys? So many Marys in, in, in the uh, you know, first five books of, of, the, of the New Testament. Well, um, even though we don't necessarily need any more Proof that the Bible is credible, because the Bible is credible. Amen? It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's the Word of God. We, we don't need any more proof because it can stand alone. Yet, I, I want you to think about this. Some people don't think it's credible. And so, here's what they say, that people in other countries just kind of randomly wrote stuff for the Bible many years after the events were over, and so their, their, their memory was kind of fuzzy, and, and they questioned the accuracy of it. But, but think about this. If you were just randomly writing stuff in the Bible in another country after the fact, um, more than likely you wouldn't confuse your audience by naming a bunch of the women in the first five books of the New Testament Mary. I mean, probably you would be a little bit more creative there. But this little detail, and again, the word doesn't need any more credibility, but it adds credibility to the word because as it turns out, Mary was in fact the most popular female name in Palestine in the first century. Back to the story. So after Peter's escape from the supermax prison, he hightails it to Mary's house. And again, this would be John Mark's mom. And that prayer meeting all of a sudden turned into a praise meeting because they're praying for Peter. He shows up. He's free. But obviously the celebration got a little bit too loud and it was in the middle of the night. And so... Peter motioned to them and said, shh, shh, shh. And then they quieted down. He told everybody what had happened to him in prison. But in order to not endanger Mary and her guests, he slipped out in the dark. And here was his final statement as he disappeared into the night. He said, tell James, and this would be the brother of Jesus, and the other brothers and sisters what had happened, what had happened God had miraculously, supernaturally delivered him from prison. And with these words, 
Peter was gone. Nobody knows for sure where Peter went at that moment. We do, do know that several years later, he surfaced in Rome. He was arrested again. And while awaiting his trial, he dictated information about the life and the teaching of Jesus to his traveling companion, John Mark. And this is the same Mark whose mother Mary was hosting the prayer meeting that Peter interrupted after being sprung from jail. And since John Mark happens to show up with Peter, and we don't know this for sure, but it almost appears to me that when Peter went to leave that night after his escape from prison, Mark basically went to his mom, and, and again, we're reading between the lines. This is not Scripture, just some assumption here. But moms, if you've got kids, imagine this possible conversation. Um, Mom, would you have a problem with me going with Peter? Yeah, yeah, Mom, I know. He just got out of prison. Um, yeah, Mom, um, I, I know he's got a price on his head. Yeah, yeah, Mom, I, I know he's the most wanted fugitive right now. And yes, Mom, more than likely he's going to die a martyr and Yes, I know if I go with him, I'll, I will too, and you may never see me alive again, but mom, please, 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 let me go with Peter. And, and it probably didn't go down that way, but somehow, way, John Mark ends up with Peter, and Peter gives to Mark his perspective, his perspective of the life of Christ, and that book would eventually circle the globe as the gospel of Mark, but remember, it wasn't the gospel of Mark, it was the gospel of Jesus. And I have a feeling that Mark's mom was probably so proud of him for saying, I'm going with Peter, even though it did cost him his life. And do you want to know how John Mark died? Maybe you don't, but tradition has him dying a very gruesome death. It said that a rope was tied around his neck, and he was tied to a horse, and he was dragged around town until he died. How about Peter? How did Peter die? Peter is eventually executed during the reign of Nero, and, and fragments of an apocryphal work, and what, what does apocryphal mean? Well, it just means it's not canonical. What does that mean? Well, it just means that um, it's a book that's not considered to be inspired uh, by God, but, but they discovered some fragments of this book that was written in the late second century, and it claims that Peter, and you've heard this, he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner of his Savior. But Roman soldiers didn't take kindly to requests from condemned criminals. So we don't know for sure if they granted him his request to be crucified upside down. Other works that are a little bit more reliable than that apocryphal work written by some of the church fathers, such as uh, Irenaeus, uh, Eusebius, Tertullian, they don't support this claim, so we don't know, but here's what we do know. While he was on the run, Peter wrote or or dictated at least two letters. They come to us as 1st and 2nd Peter. They're written to 1st century Christians who had been scattered throughout the empire because of the persecution that originated in Jerusalem. Well, as they scattered all across the empire, little house churches started popping up all over, and the pagans didn't know exactly what to make of this. Because they were so impressed by how calm and and how peaceful these people were in the face of persecution. 
Not only did they love each other, but they also loved those that didn't even believe like they did. They, they weren't prejudiced. They weren't elitist. And most amazing of all, they went out, to, out of their way to take care of people who nobody else was willing to take care of. But it wasn't long until these Christians got in hot water. Just a little bit of history here. They got in, in hot water with the pagan government because even though the Christians were amazing citizens, they were model citizens, yet one thing they would not do was to sacrifice or even acknowledge pagan gods, which turned out to be a big problem. Now, here's the thing, and, and I've told you this before, but during this period of time, adding a god was not a problem. Um, people did that all the time. A city could have dozens of gods, could have uh, hundreds of gods. It said that the, uh, the city of Athens had up to 30,000 different gods, different idols. So adding a god was not a problem, but ignoring one of the traditional existing gods, and I won't bore you with, with this, but I, I researched it, and they, were the, they had the big three, the big three gods. And, and uh, so if you ignored them, that was a big problem. The, the last thing that the people who were literally living on the edge economically and nutritionally, and, and we can ima- can't imagine how food-deprived they really were because most of us have plenty to eat. But, but they were food-deprived, and, and the last thing they wanted to do was to upset the Roman gods because fundamental to Roman culture was the assumption that the empire of Rome would only be eternal as long as Rome enjoyed the favor of the gods. But the gods were extremely fickle and, and cranky and easily offended. And, uh, and, and so maintaining the favor of the gods was considered a national security issue for Rome. And if too many Roman citizens neglected the old gods, the big three, it would only be a matter of time before the old gods got angry and withdrew their favor. So as Christianity began to spread, and here's what happened. Locals began to blame Christians for anything negative that took place. If there was an earthquake, the Christians got the blame. Floods, military defeat, famine, plague, hey, blame the Christians. It's their fault because they're not following the Roman gods. Blame the Christians. And of course, bringing it down to, to, to us, we play the blame game as well. It's human nature to look for someone or sometimes it's someone's to blame when things go back. For, for example, I read Wednesday, and I want you just to listen to this entire uh, illustration before you, uh, before you walk out on me. Um, Wednesday, I read that inflation hit a 30-year high, 6.2% in October. So, if you're a Republican, here's what you think. Well, well duh. The highest inflation in 30 years is the fault of our Democratic president and administration. But, but if you're a Democrat, you say, hey, it's because of the previous administration, the Republican administration, they set all of this in motion. So it's human nature to find someone to blame. Same thing happens in the home. If we don't like something that's going on, hey, blame someone else. If we don't like something going on in the church, you know, find someone to blame. Blame, blame the pastor's wife. Uh, blame the secretaries. Just don't blame the pastor. <laughs> you know, the last place we look is in the mirror because we don't want to accept the fact that we might be the problem. 
And people living a couple of thousand years ago were no different. Um, In fact, scapegoating Christians was so common that Tertullian, and, uh, you know, Tertullian, if you were raised in church, you've heard that name, Uh, but his dad was a Roman centurion. Uh, Tertullian converted to Christianity in the mid to late 100s AD, and and, uh, and, and I was, again, researching this this past week, but Tertullian, have you ever thought about his name, Tertullian? Um, have you ever wondered what his full name was? Um, you're about to find out. Uh, and, and you'll be thankful that his, it, it's been shortened, but his full name was this, Quintus Septimus Florence Tertullianus. Aren't you glad that we just call him Tertullian? But, but anyway, Tertullian was the first church leader to write his works in Latin. Uh, but Tertullian made this observation. He wrote this, if the Tiber rises too high. Now, the Tiber River was the river that ran through the city of Rome, and, and it was the source of their freshwater source of, of trade. But unfortunately, when it, when it flooded, with the, which, which it did oftentimes, um, it also became part of the sewage system. So you've got drinking water that's now part of the sewage system, and and it created problems on multiple levels. So Tertullian said, if the Tiber rises too high, but then he went on and he said, or the Nile is too low. Now the Nile basin in Egypt, where where Rome purchased the majority of its grain, the Nile River was the source of irrigation in that region of the world. So, So when the Nile River ran too low, it resulted in a bad harvest, drive up grain prices, Uh, Talk about inflation, sometimes trigger civil unrest, possibly even famine. So, if the Tiber rises too high and the Nile dips too low, and here's what I want you to listen to, Tertullian observed this. He said, the remedy is always feeding Christians to the lions. Feed them to the lions. In other words, when anything went wrong in the empire, they believed the gods were upset. And the best way to appease the gods was to feed Christians to the line, rid the empire of these pesky Christians who did not recognize the gods. And, and so Peter knew this as he writes to Christians throughout the empire to comfort and encourage them. But not only did Peter try to explain why tough times come our way and, and to comfort us while we go through those, those trials, but Four chapters later, and we're finally arriving to the heart of our lesson, but in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter gives Christians in the Roman Empire and Christians in America and Christians in Cedar County and Christians in Columbia, Missouri as well for you, Hubbards. Um, He gives us an assignment. He said, while you're out there suffering and being mistreated and going through a pandemic, don't circle the wagons, you know, like they did in the Old West. They, if danger came, they would circle the wagons and put the women and the children in the middle to be safe. No, don't circle the wagons and just barricade yourself inside your home or inside your church and, and pray that Jesus returns soon. Instead, this is what Peter asked us to do. Chapter 4, verse 1, 1 Peter. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. So, here in a world that's cruel, where bad things happen, people are not nice to you, where there are differences of of opinions on masks, and dare I say vaccines, and pandemics, and politics, Peter says, equip yourselves, 
arm yourselves with this particular weapon. And what is that weapon? With the same attitude. That would be the same attitude of Jesus because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. So what does this mean? Well, it means to arm yourself with the same perspective, the same way of thinking that Jesus had. And and what was that? Well, Peter does not leave it up to our opinion. You know, we're so good to take a concept of the Bible and say, well, you know what, this is what I think. And someone says, well, I'm not sure. This is my opinion. Someone else says, no, 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 no. This, I've studied that. This is what I think it says. But on this matter, Peter didn't leave it up to our opinions. You know, skipping down to verse 8, here's what he says. He says, while you're suffering, maybe even being blamed for everything that goes wrong in your home at work, arm yourself with the perspective that Jesus had. Verse 8, above all, love each other deeply. Why? Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, uh, Peter wait a minute, what does loving each other deeply have to do with going through tough times and suffering? And Peter says, well, everything. Because this particular unique kind of love covers over a bunch of irritations and differences and idiosyncrasies. And and when we have this kind of love, it it puts us in in, in a place to where we we don't always have to get our way. We don't always have to demand our rights. We can be at peace with our circumstances. We can be at peace with our differences because that, that love, that, that peace just covers over a multitude of wrongs. I think Peter's point was this. Sin will divide you. Love will unite you. There, there's something about love that just creates a sense of peace where there's a lot of love in a family. One of the natural results will be peace in that family. You know, where there's a lot of love in a church, you will find a church that is at peace and unified. And, you know, we can overlook some of the irritating differences that we have. When there's a lot of love in a place of business, you you employers, you will find that it will be a place customers want to come and where employees want to work. I don't know if you've been keeping up with a a new phrase that was coined this year. It's a buzz phrase. uh, the Great Resignation. Anybody heard about the Great Resignation? This was first used by a professor at Texas A&M University named Anthony Klotz. And, and this phrase has been used to describe that over the past year and a half, uh, millions of Americans have quit their jobs. In fact, in the month of July alone of, of 2021, it was a record at that time, 4 million Americans quit their jobs. Well, in August of this year, it went from 4 million, then 4.3 million more Americans quit their jobs. Then Friday, the news came out that a record, another record, 4.4 million Americans quit their jobs in September. And this is not an indictment, I was just reading the article here, and it said that the age group that's driving the great resignation would be those that are 30 to 45 years of age. But anyway, I began researching this great resignation, and, and I wanted to know why so many people, even people that had worked at the same institution, same company, 
Same corporation for, for many, many years. Why are people bailing at a rate? And of course, today during the pandemic, we, we call everything unprecedented, but at an unprecedented rate. Why? Well, at first blush, I think most of us would say, well, people are leaving in search of a higher paying job or a job that has better benefits. And, and I'm sure that's true for, for some, but would you believe, would you believe that good pay and good benefits barely crack the top top 10 reasons? That reason came in at number 10. The number one reason that people are quitting their jobs, and this is according to a study done by a man named Neil Dukoff, but, but he said that the number one factor that people are leaving their jobs is because they don't feel that they're part of something special. They don't feel a connection with the rest of their coworkers. In other words, People tended to stay at a job long-term where there was unity and peace and a sense of belonging and where co-workers cared for each other. That's the number one reason why they stayed. How about the number two reason? Well, according to this researcher, the number two factor that people valued in a job was that their job gave them purpose and meaning. And so I went through all of those ten reasons, and finally, number ten was a good salary and benefits package. So, um, employers, those of you that are here listening on the live stream, maybe on the radio, um, can I encourage you to pay your employees fair wages? But probably as important or more so would be to help create an atmosphere where there's peace and, and a sense of belonging and, and that your employees feel like they're part of something special. And it's interesting how one person can sabotage the sense of unity. And, and again, just kind of a tip for employers, if, if you have one person that's mean and cranky and, and backbites, it would probably be in your best interest to deal with that person individually because, I mean, we all know how one person can totally change the dynamic of a place of business. You know, when you go into a place of business and, and see long-term employees with very little turnover, more than likely the bosses, the managers, have learned the secret of creating an atmosphere where caring for each other is a priority. So, so Peter says that if you will arm yourself with the love of Jesus and, and then love the way that he loved you, it will unite you. It will unite you. And I've learned in a, in a church that people want more than just good doctrine and and a nice building, and a bunch of good programs. They, they want to see that during difficult times, such as pandemics and financial dips and political divisions, that we as followers of Jesus Christ still love each other, and we like each other. And if people see that in us, I promise you they will want to be part of us. Well, Peter then gets even more painfully specific. Here, he says, here is how this love will manifest itself among you. And in verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And, and, and remember, he's writing this to people that didn't have it made. I mean, these were people in all kinds of turmoil. Um, they were barely keeping their heads above water. They were suffering for their faith. They were suffering with hunger pangs. They were under a very wicked government. Peter was saying to them that while we are going through those hard times, to them and to us, that while we're going through those hard times, wondering what new challenges the pandemic will bring us, while we're tempted to, again, circle the wagons and, and focus on ourselves because we're so overwhelmed with everything, 
Peter says, focus outward on others, offer hospitality. Verse 10, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in his various forms. To which many of us at the Church of God Holiness would say, Peter, wait, wait, you obviously don't know what's going on in the world in 2021. And you obviously don't know what's going on in my life. You know, I'm too busy, too stressed, too strapped, too anxious to do what you're saying. And I'm barely hanging by a thread. Peter, that's asking a lot. But when you think about it, God the Father asked a lot of His Son. While you were still a sinner, while you were still sowing your wild oats, God asked His Son to do something that seemed very unreasonable considering how bad you were, considering how bad I was, he asked his son to die for us. And the good news is that he's not asking us to die for anyone. He's just asking us to love people deeply, serve them, offer hospitality, not barricade ourselves in because we might get tainted by the world and we might not be safe. Peter says, love each other, serve each other. And here's what's amazing. History tells us that these Christians did exactly what Peter instructed them to do without raising an army, without raising a bunch of money, without raising Cain against a government that was way more twisted and way more corrupt than our governments today, without, without really even raising their voices. They raised the dignity of the people around them. In the midst of the misery, in the midst of poverty, and epidemics that swept through many villages and cities, Christians in the early centuries provided an oasis of mercy and compassion. And for us today, mercy and compassion, they're pretty ingrained in our culture. A tragedy strikes, we go to the rescue. But it was so countercultural in that day because um, the gods didn't have mercy. But Christians embraced mercy and compassion. And this became most evident when a series of pestilences and, and epidemics, we would have called it probably pandemics, decimated and devastated the Roman Empire. History records that entire cities, entire villages became graveyards. In fact, history would also record that some of the regions were abandoned for a generation for fear that maybe the plague, you know, like Chernobyl, abandoned for a generation there for fear that the radiation would still be there. And so they, they feared that this plague, whatever it was, would still remain in that area. And so they would abandon these communities, these villages for an entire generation. Um, during one of these epidemics in the late second century, it's reported that there were 5,000 deaths a day just in the city of Rome. And what was interesting is that when this pestilence broke out, the pagan priests, the civic leaders, the wealthy people, the government officials, you know what they did? They fled to the countryside. You know, we got to have space. But this is what is so impactful. Many Christians chose to stay right in the heart of the epidemic because they had found peace despite their circumstances, and, and they had literally lost their fear of death. And, and as they stayed right in the heart of these communities that were stricken with disease and death, and instead of isolating themselves as the pagans did, here's what they did. They began to care for people in the church, care for their brothers and sisters in Christ. But, but then these Christians took things to an unprecedented step further. They took what Peter said about hospitality to a level that no one expected 
they cared for not only in those in the church, but they began to care for their pagan neighbors. You know what? Here in this community, could you say it? That would mean those on meth, alcoholics, those that we might just say losers, even though, of course, God looks down on us. He says, there are no losers. I died for everyone. And these idol-worshiping pagans, they were stunned. <laughs> they were stunned by, by this kindness of these compassionate people. In fact, at the height of one of these epidemics, Bishop Dionysius of uh, Alexandria wrote a lengthy tribute commending Christians who had remained behind to care for the sick and in many cases gave their lives to do so. Here's what he wrote. This is the bishop. He said, most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, thinking only of one another, heedless of danger. They took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, ministering to them in Christ, and listen, and with, with them some departed this life. In other words, they caught the plague while caring for others. And, and here's what's so powerful. This is what, man, it just impacted me so much this week. These men and women did not die for what they believed. You know, we hear all the time, well, so-and-so, they, they died for what they believed, but they didn't die for what they believed. They died because they acted on what they believed. That's why it's not enough for us to believe correctly. It's not enough for us to just believe in God. It's not enough to just believe that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. It's not enough to just believe that God wants us to love and to care for each other. What really matters is that we act on what we believe and actually care for others. And it's interesting that in the same letter... This bishop talks about the pagans. He said the heathen behaved in the very opposite way. (laughs) At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest. Listen, throwing them into the roads before they were even dead. That's their relatives, their dearest. Threw them in the roads before they were dead. And it said they treated unburied corpses as dirt, no dignity. And so the selfless behavior of Christians became impossible to ignore. The pagan world began to take note. Christians showcased a category of compassion and generosity that got the attention of those in need and eventually grabbed the attention of those who had grown tired of a culture characterized by greed that reflected the values of the gods. How about the God of the Christians? The God of the Christians was different. He came to earth to die for his subjects. And his subjects in turn gave to and cared for those who could not care for themselves. And what did this lead to? And this is just, I I love church history, but this led to the conversion of Emperor Constantine about, you know, 300 years because of this culture change in the empire and um, 300 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And, you know, we don't know for sure if Constantine's conversion was sincere or if it was political in nature. We don't know. But what we do know is that What began as a persecuted minority influenced the majority by refusing to arm themselves with the weapons of the kingdoms of the world. And what what are the weapons of this world? I have my rights. Weapon of the world. Um, You did me dirty, I will see you in court. Weapon of the world. Turnabout is fair play. Weapon of the world. 
they armed themselves with the weapon of Christ, which was to love and to give and to serve. Do you know the result? was The world was changed forever, where it had been embedded in the DNA of the Roman Empire, you know, the, the greed of the gods, and he's out to get you. Um, those values began to change. And uh, just a little historical tidbit that I find so fascinating. About 20 years after Constantine's death, a relative of his, Julian, he was actually Constantine's half-brother's son. He became emperor. And, and the story of Julian is whenever he reached the age of about 20, of course, he was raised uh, kind of in the, in, in the Christian, we don't know, at least it was a nominal Christian atmosphere if, if it wasn't really a relationship. But around the age of 20, Julian abandoned uh, Christianity. And he went back and re-embraced the Roman gods because he was convinced that uh, that the problems in the empire were the result of the gods being exo- ignored. And so he, here's what he did. Whereas Constantine had, uh, had, began to, had started throwing money into the Christian churches. But, but uh, here's what Julian did is, is he uh, defunded the, the Christian churches. And, uh, and, and Julian became known as Julian the Apostate. He reinstituted the pagan priesthood as well as pagan sacrifices. And this is what I find, again, so fascinating is that, is that he began trying to, uh, to create pagan charities. Now, there had never been a pagan charity because the pagan gods weren't charitable. That They didn't promote being nice to those who weren't nice or to those who were needy. You know, scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. And that was basically the God's philosophy. And, and so when Julian tried to create pagan charities, it fell flat. And, and Julian the apostate, this is what just cracks me up, he was so frustrated by this. And in a letter to the pagan high priest in, in Galatia, he was in, in, insisting that they distribute free grain and free wine to the poor. And he said this, noting that these impious Galileans, now, that's how he referred to Christians, impious Galileans, in addition to taking care of their own people, they support ours as well. And he said, it's shameful that our poor should have to be supported by these Galileans, these impious Galileans. But there was no response to Julian's proposals because the concepts of others first and give to those who cannot or will not return the favor, love your enemy, those concepts were so far from what had been embedded in the hearts of these pagans for generations. Now, what's important here is that when Peter originally instructed early Christians to practice hospitality and generosity and to love deeply, it was not a strategy for change. It was not a strategy to start a revolution. And, and Peter did not see compassion and virtue as a way to topple the empire. Because as far as what Peter was thinking at that time, you know, Roman Empire might have been eternal. So, so he was not promoting this to, to gain something. Peter was clear. He said, loving each other, giving to each other, serving each other, that's just the proper response. Oh. Because that's what Jesus told us to do. 
We read that in a verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 last week. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. So, so we give, we love, we serve, not to change the world, even though probably the world will change. We give, we serve, we love, because that's what our Heavenly Father did for us. And how can we do any less? Now, at the end uh, of, of Peter's letter, I, um, I know we're going to go into just a little short time of overtime right now. Just enjoy this overtime. But at the end of Peter's letter, there's something so subtle that most of you missed it. Uh, and I don't want you to miss it. Here's how he closes out this first letter that we call 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 12. With the help of Silas whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly. So uh, probably this means Peter didn't actually write this letter. He more than likely dictated it to Silas, who wrote it down, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in, fast in it, so stay the course. And then here's a little detail that most of us have skipped over because we didn't understand it. So let me talk about this. While this is being written, Peter is probably still on the run. Um, and he doesn't want anyone who might possibly intercept this letter to know where he is or, or who he is with. And so it appears that he closes this out with some coded language. When you were kids, did you ever write notes, meet you, and have coded language? Um, that's what it appears right here. Verse 13. She who is in Babylon... What? Uh, Peter, what does that have to do with anything you've said so far? She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you. By the way, anybody know what this means? She who is in Babylon? Just raise your hand if you know exactly what that means. Uh, That's what I thought. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, the first question is, who is she? She who is in Babylon. The second question, what's the reference to Babylon? Because if you study history, and and I did this past week just to make sure that the timeline is right, But you will find out that when Peter wrote this letter, Babylon is now an insignificant city um, that's uh, several hundred miles east of Jerusalem. And as I researched it, by this time in history, Babylon had been destroyed and laid to waste. So Babylon didn't even really exist. So what does it mean, she who is in Babylon? Babylon. Why was she in Babylon? Why was Peter in Babylon, the destroyed city? Well, more than likely, he wasn't. He he wasn't. Um, And I'm not going to say this with total certainty, but most scholars believe that Babylon was code for Rome. 
Some believe that it's Jerusalem, but I think there's a stronger argument that uh, this is in reference to Rome. And so Peter was trying to keep his whereabouts somewhat secret. So they, they believe, scholars, of which I'm not one, but they believe that he was referring to Rome. Now, who's she? She who is in Babylon. Well, um, more than likely, she refers to the church. Jesus calls the church his bride. So Peter was more than likely operating undercover, but still teaching and sharing Christ in the last place that anybody would suspect. He was right in the heart of the Roman Empire, whereas most people probably thought that Peter, because he was a fugitive, had a price on his head, probably was hiding in a remote area. Well, because of fearless people like Peter, the church grew like crazy. And the countercultural generosity of the church continued to erode the old ways of selfishness and demanding their rights. And, and the church tried to establish a better way, a new way, a new kingdom. And thanks to you and thanks to followers of Jesus like you, the kingdom, the kingdom of conscience, the kingdom of generosity, the kingdom of serving, the kingdom of loving, the kingdom of Jesus continues to expand to this very day. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.